Well, I didn't know we were supposed to get all that snow that we got this morning, but uh, it's good to see you guys here, all right? You guys are the, you know, you know who your people are on a day like today. People are coming to church, snow ain't going to stop them. Um, hey, just want to reiterate something that AJ was talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, next week, we have our big event, and um, this is one of the biggest things that we've done as a church since we've been here in Tiffin, maybe the biggest thing since we opened up. And um, that's going to be at uh, the indoor uh, track, the indoor arena at TU, the Hemminger Center. And it's going to be next Sunday at 6 o'clock. Just want to say, you guys should all come. We're doing this. A few months ago, we were thinking through, and we're like, you know what? There's not a point, you know, there's not a time where our whole church family is all together under the same roof at the same time, you know, because we have two services and people miss each other. And so um, the Bible calls us to be a family that, you know, we do life together. And so this is just one opportunity that we're doing. We're saying, hey, let's just try to get everybody together for a couple hours and just have some fun. So um, that's what we're planning on doing. And uh, some people are asking me, like, what is it? What's the big event? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just not very creative on coming up with names for things. And uh, it's hard for me to describe. So if I were to describe it, I'd describe it as, uh, and I know people are from all different backgrounds. So like church picnic and um, ice cream social and family reunion and the fair, if they were all able to come together and have a baby, which sounds very unbiblical. Um, but if they were, out would pop the big event, okay? So that's what it is, um, just to give some sort of idea around that. And it's really designed, we're trying to design it for, to be awesome for toddlers and then awesome for like the oldest people, okay? So it's everybody in between. Um, it should at least be interesting. Come, you don't have to stay the whole time. Come stop by. Um, it, should be, it should be fun, Okay. Okay, all right, sounds good. All right, so for the last few weeks, we have been talking about this lady named, this girl named Esther, who is a young Jewish orphan girl, who at some point uh, became the queen of the most powerful empire at that point in time that the world had ever seen. And it was the Persian Empire, it happened 2,500 years ago. Um, the, uh, we've talked about, kind of at the, at the beginning, we kind of dove into Esther and, and her life and kind of what was happening. Uh, she did not have an easy life, okay? It's not like everything was handed to her on a silver platter, at least at the beginning of her life. Um, she was an orphan, so that means her mom has died, her dad has died. Uh, she doesn't seem to have anybody except for her, an older cousin, uh, this guy named Mordecai, who kind of takes her under his own wing. And Mordecai, he's, a, um, he's an official of the king. And so um, they're living in a foreign land. They're Jewish people. They're kind of living with the enemy. Actually, the capital city of the enemy, Persia, owns like the whole world at that point in history, and including Israel. And what we see throughout this book that is that by the providence of God, she gets picked as queen for, que for King Xerxes, who's the king of the Persian Empire. And uh, last week, we were introduced to this guy named Haman. And Haman, he's, he gets this big promotion in his life. He becomes the second in command of the Persian Empire, just right under the king. And along with this uh, promotion, the king signs into law that any time that Haman walks by, everybody has to bow down to him and worship him. And this isn't like, oh, we just bow down and pay our respects. This is like face in the dirt, bow down, which is a very normal thing for the Persians in this point in history because the Persians, they viewed their king as God, okay? They viewed their king as divine. And so Haman, he gets some of this worship, he gets some of this praise that, uh, that King Xerxes usually gets, some of this respect. But when Haman is walking around, 
and he's doing his thing. He's probably walking a little bit longer. You know, he's got the Fitbit on. He's getting his steps in, extra steps, because everybody has to bow down to him. It's probably pretty awesome for him. Uh, he notices at some point that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refuses to bow down. At first, he doesn't even notice. But then people come up, and they're like, hey, did you notice that guy? Mordecai standing over there, you know, and so it's like this wave of people as Haman's walking down the street, they're all bow, 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 and then Mordecai's standing there, and he's like, no, just standing there. And when Haman realizes this, it makes him so mad. He is ticked off at this guy, and he decides to have Mordecai executed. He's just like, all right, we're going to, we're going to take this guy out, I'm going to have this guy killed, but not just Mordecai, he decides to have the entire Jewish people killed. He's like, I'm going to kill all of his people. And what we talked about is all this happens really because of Haman's pride, okay? And it's Haman's pride, that's what it is. And by the way, every single one of us in this room, including myself, we all got Haman-level pride within us, okay? Like, like that sin and that dirt is within us, and, um, and, and it's a part of us, Okay? So it's just something that we were talking about that we were just pointing out. Um, it's, it's, it's there. And so because Haman has this pride, he goes to King Xerxes. He's like, hey, King, what's up? Um, here's the deal. There's some people within our empire, I don't know if you know this or not, that uh, they have their own laws. They got their own set of rules. They don't follow Persian law. And uh, so it's probably better for the entire kingdom if these people just get, uh, let's just eliminate them. Let's just get rid of them, eliminate them. I think that'll be better for the whole thing. And uh, King Xerxes, he doesn't ask who the people are. He doesn't ask anything about it. He's just like, you know what? All right, Haman, I trust you. Whatever you think, like, go ahead and do it. Uh, it probably is better for the whole kingdom if these people are eliminated. So go ahead. You write a law. That's totally fine. And so Haman goes... He gets out his pen and paper. He starts writing this law down. And he, he signs this decree that on a certain day um, that, uh, that everybody are to go and kill any Jewish people that they see or that they know. And this was to take place in about 11 months later, which is kind of even more cruel if you think about it. Like you have 11 months knowing that you're going to die on this certain day and there's nothing you can do about it. And so um, that's, the, uh, that's the law. And he even specifies within the law, he says, hey, the young and the old. Right? He says the women and the children, not just the men. He says everybody, all Jewish people need to get wiped out. And this may have been, at this point in history, maybe every Jewish person that lived. I mean, because the Persian Empire owned Israel, and there wasn't very many areas that, that, uh, that the Persian Empire didn't control with, with people in it. And so it was just crazy. And, uh, and so for you, I mean, it would be like, you know, if you're living next door to a Jewish couple, that you know, a Jewish family, and they got a really nice house, maybe they got some wealth to them, um, by law... Okay, that the Persian king assigned, all right, by law, you are to, on this certain day, to kill the murder of that entire family. All right, that's the rule. That's, that's what the kings tell them to do. And then in return, you get to keep their house and you get to keep all their stuff. All right, so he throws in some incentive. I mean, Haman's not an idiot. Like, he's a pretty smart guy. So he writes this law and he sends news of this new law out throughout the kingdom. And everything at this point in time seems to be going really great for Haman. I mean, it's all good. He's got this huge promotion. He's now the second most powerful man on earth. He's got people worshiping him. Yeah, he had this like little hiccup thing with, with Mordecai, but he's taking care of that. Mordecai is going to be executed soon in just a few months, and along with all of his people. And, uh, and everything seems to be going good. And remember how it ended last week in the story? Uh, the last verse of chapter 3 says, The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. It says, The king and Haman, what they do? 
sat down to drink. So Haman, he feels like, hey, I got this whole thing under control. This is awesome. And then the king, he's like oblivious. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just like, hey, yeah. So they just sit down. They have a couple beers just to hang out with each other while the city of Susa was in confusion. I mean, everything around them, yeah, what's going on with them, everything's good, but everything around them is all in confusion. It's like the whole city is just like, what is going on? Everybody's confused. The Jews are freaking out. They're being told that they're going to kill, they're going to get killed. The non-Jewish people are told, hey, you know, they're, you know I, they're thinking, I have to kill my Jewish neighbors? Like, I don't know if I could do that. Or, or some of them are probably excited about doing that. And, and they're like, you know, I'm sure some people are like, well, you know, is this ever going to happen to me and my people? Like, are they going to, is the king going to get mad at my people at some point? And then I'm going to be in danger? And so that's where the story ends. Next verse, and starting in chapter 4. Well, that's where the story ended last week. Starting in chapter 4 this week. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, what's this? This sounds kind of weird to us. What's sackcloth and ashes? What's that mean? Basically, sackcloth was like a... Um, it was like animal skins that you would put on, not your normal thing, um, that uh, would basically show everybody that you're in extreme distress, that you got something going on in your life that's not good. And so you'd wear this, you put ashes all over your face, and, and it would show everybody that something is killing you on the inside. Okay, extreme distress. It'd be, it's kind of similar to, um, you know, you wear black to a funeral to show everybody that, you know, you're, you're in sorrow. So uh, kind of like that. So Mordecai goes, he gets his, like, pulls his you know, animal shirts out of the closet, puts those things on, he sprinkles some ashes on his face, and he goes out into the middle of the city, and he cries loudly and bitterly. He just goes out and starts wailing. It says, he went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. You weren't allowed to enter the king's palace wearing animal skins. That was totally not cool. So Mordecai freaks out. He finds this new law. Deeply troubling, which we understand. Like, that makes sense to us. FYI, by the way, there's no indication here that Mordecai is at all sorry for not bowing down. Okay? Kind of interesting. Mordecai is not going, oh, no. Why didn't I just bow down? I should have just done it. Um, you know, God will forgive me. This isn't that big of a deal. We should have just, you know, I just wish we could go back and I would bow down to Haman and this wouldn't be a big deal. That's, that's not what he's doing. What he's super sorrowful about is that all of his people are going to be wiped out. And not just Mordecai is mourning this. It says many, many, many of the Jews that are everywhere throughout the city. Actually, that's what the Bible uses. The Bible uses the word everywhere throughout the entire empire. They all get news of this and they're just like, wait, what? We're about to get killed? They don't know what's going on. I mean, think about this for just the next 30 seconds. Imagine what it would have been like to have been a Jew at this point in history on this day. Imagine how it would have been like for you. You, get, you go out to your mailbox, you get this letter in the mail that you and your family are going to be murdered in a few months on this certain day, okay? Uh, like, think about how terrible that would be. And this isn't like, you know, this is back in the day, it's a king. It's not like you call up your local senator and say, you know, we're going to vote you out. You know, it's not like you could do that. You have no, like, power at all, if we even have power now, you know. Um, it, you, and you don't know why. You don't know why this is going on. You don't know what the deal is. You can't do anything about it. You can't run. 
right? The Persian Empire is huge. They own most of the known world. It's not like you could jump in a plane and fly to a different continent where they can't reach you. I mean, you are stuck. And it's not just you. It's your kids, your grandkids, your parents, everybody in your family. You guys are all stuck in the same place. And so it's understandable the Jewish people are devastated. I mean, this, is, this really bothers them. And Mordecai, he's making it public. Right? He's showing, you know, the, the whole city. So Esther's female servants and her eunuchs, they came. They noticed him one day. They're like, hey, you know, we should probably go tell Esther that her cousin is like wailing loudly out in the city streets wearing his, you know, animal skins. It says, so they go and they reported the news to her. And the queen was overcome with fear. Now, I don't really like this translation of fear. I don't think that's the best word here um, because it's not like she's scared of anything. She's just super distressed. And she's not distressed, by the way, because of this new law. She doesn't seem to have a clue about the new law yet. What she's distressed about is just knowing that Mordecai's distressed, her, her cousin, you know, kind of a father figure in her life. And so she's like, oh, man, something so bad is happening in Mordecai's life. You know, what, what could this be? So she's distressed with that. And so she did a typical lady move here. She sends him some clothes, okay? Like, I know what will cheer you up. All right, here's a new outfit I picked out for you last week. So she sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his animal skins, right, his, his, his sackcloth. But he did not accept them. He's like, I don't want your clothes, all right? You don't understand what's going on here, okay? This is like a really, really, really big deal. And so Esther, she doesn't know what to do. At this point in the story, I mean, she is so disconnected here. I mean, she doesn't seem to know what has happened. And she's been queen for a few years now. Um, I'm sure life is good for Esther. The Bible tells us that the king loves her and that she has everything that she has ever wanted. I mean, she has everything that the world tells us that we should want and that we should need, right? I mean, she's got the, the riches and the fame and the authority and the power. I mean, she has it all. She's got everything. And my guess is that maybe... Her life has become so comfortable that she's just disconnected from reality, right? She's disconnected from what's, what's really going on on the outside. I mean, she seems to have missed that this new law that has just taken place. She seems to be one of the only ones, right? Because remember, the Bible's already told us the whole city is in confusion. And Jews everywhere throughout the empire, I mean, this has been going on for a while now. I mean, the Jews everywhere, they know about this and they're super, super bummed out. Like, like, this is happening and they don't know what to do about it and they're distressed. I mean, and, and Esther, what's she doing? She's in her palace doing her own thing. She doesn't seem to have a clue. So she hears about Mordecai. She grabs a servant. She's like, hey, um, I want you to go find out what's going on. Like, what's the deal? Why isn't he accepting my, my outfit that I gave him? Like, you know, uh, what's going on with that? And so when the servant gets to Mordecai, it says, Mordecai told him everything. All right? He tells him everything that happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. So he tells him everything. And, and Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. So he's like out in the square telling him he's, he's crying, he's wearing, he's got... Ashes all over me, grabs the closest telephone pole and is like, hey, here's a copy of it right here. Like, read it for yourself. You need to take this to Queen Esther. Have her check it out. And, uh, and he gives him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction. And so Mordecai tells him along with this, he's like, here's this copy. And you need to tell Queen Esther, she needs to go talk to the king. 
Like, she needs to go talk to him. Like, ask the king to do something. This is a really, really, really big deal. Like, millions of people are going to die because of this new law. And when the servant gets back to Esther, he tells her everything. Everything that Mordecai said. He gives her the copy of the, of the new law. And he tells her, hey, by the way, Mordecai is telling me to tell you that you need to go to the king. And you need to ask him to do something or to, to fix this. And she sends this reply back to Mordecai. She says, Mordecai, cuz, uncle, dad, kind of. She says, hey, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces, they know that one law applies to every man or woman. He's, she's like, hey, you know the deal. You know about this law. You know what's going on. That Everybody, anybody who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, she's like, hey, Mordecai, you know what's going on here? You know the law? Like, like you know what could happen to me that it's against the law for me to just to go approach the king. Like, I can't just waltz in there and be like, yo, what's up, king, even though he's my husband? She's like, I can't do that, right? The penalty is death. Kind of a big deal, you know? Like, normally we don't do things that uh, have the death penalty, you know, associated with that. And so she says, that's the death penalty. I will be executed for just going in and talking to the king unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. She says, I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And so Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. So she's just pointing out, she's like, hey, you want me to go in and talk to the king? Well, by the way, as you know, it's illegal to approach the king unless he asks for you, right? Like you don't walk right into the throne room and say, hey, um, king, you are uh, making a bad governing decisions and, you know, I don't appreciate it. You don't walk into the king's throne room and say, hey, king, you don't know how to run your own government, right? You don't do that. And I'm sure in the back of her mind, she's even thinking about the first queen, right? Remember Queen Vashti a couple weeks ago, we were talking about her, how she got banished for life only because she didn't show up to the king's party. He invites her to his party, and she's like, nah, not going. No thanks. Right? She also kind of has the icing on the cake reason, you know, which we all do this when we're making excuses for stuff. Uh, she's like, oh, and by the way, Mordecai, I haven't seen the king in over a month. Like, you know, like we're married, but this probably isn't the best time for me to ask him of a favor because, you know, the king's not sleeping alone. Like, he's probably with some of his other women and some of his other wives, and I might be queen, but, but he's with all the, you know, he's, he's with other girls, and, and, you know, he's not with me, and that's all she knows. And she's like, probably not the best time. Like, our marriage isn't, like, really, really, really good at the moment, and so this probably isn't a good time for me to go in and try to fix all this. So Esther's basically telling more. Mordecai, she's like, this is crazy. This isn't going to work. I can't do that. She basically says, no way. And at this point, what we see is that Esther is more concerned about her own welfare than about her people, right? I mean, she's more concerned about herself than about her, you know, millions of, of, of Jewish people that, are, that live throughout the empire. And so Mordecai responds, and he kind of points this out a little bit. It says, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, okay? It says, hey, Esther, honey, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. He's like, hey, don't think for a second that you're safe from all this because you live in the palace. 
don't think for a second you're safe from all this because you think because you're queen and you live, you know, you live there. He says, if you keep silent at this time, actually relief and deliverance, that will come to the Jewish people from another place. Like God's going to rescue us regardless of what you decide and what you do. But you and your father's family, you guys are the ones who are going to get killed. He says, who knows? This is like the pinnacle of the book. This is, you know, you see this phrase sometimes written on shirts and stuff. Um, it says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's saying here, he's like, Esther, wake up. He's like, hey, you have to connect the dots here. Like, think about it. Like, has it ever occurred to you that maybe, just maybe, that God has orchestrated your life for this moment? Like, have you thought about this? Like, Esther, think about it. You were a Orphan Jewish girl who had nothing, and now you're the queen of the Persian Empire. And really what Mordecai is trying to get her to understand is something that I think every single one of us need to understand. And that is this, that you and your life has been shaped on purpose. You get that? You and your life has been shaped on purpose. Like God knows every dumb decision I'm going to make, and he, makes a, he knows every good decision I'm going to make, and he has mapped out that the, where I'm at is actually He's done it on purpose. Like what I'm saying is like, like where you're at right now, the job that you're in or the school that you go to or, or, you know, the family that you're in, it's not random. Like you realize that? We don't think about this very much at all. Right? You realize that? It's not a random. It's not an accident. It's not just like God's going, oh, yeah, Zach Pinkerton's doing his life somewhere. Uh, you know, I'll check back in in a few years. It's not, it's not what's going on here. That's not the reality of it. It's interesting because God has, again, shaped our life on purpose. And you know what we do with it? Most of the time, we complain about it. You notice that? All right, we complain about all kinds of stuff. We complain about our job. Okay, ever heard people do that? Maybe once, ever. Um, you complain about our bosses. We complain about our employees. We complain about our roommate or the class that we're in or the team that we're on or the coach that we have. We complain about whatever situation is going on in our life. We complain about our neighbors. We complain about our family. We complain about our job. See, God has purposely placed us where we're at, and all we do is complain about it. All right? It's really messed up. See, God has a reason for us as to why we are where we are. Jesus, he actually talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus says. He says, hey, you. By the way, you know who he's talking to right here? God of the universe. This morning, as we all sit in this room here in Tiffin, Ohio, he's talking to you. Okay? He's talking to, for, he's talking to his followers, which is us here this morning. So if you want to know what God's trying to tell you this morning, here he is directly talking to you through his word. He says, hey, you. 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 All right? Me. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, we could take this word world and we can replace it with other things, right? Insert whatever you got going on. Um, you are the light of your school, right? You are the light of your dorm. You are the light of your class. You are the light of your team. You're the light of your office. You're the light of your line. You're the light of your crew. You're the light of your neighborhood. You are the light of your family. You are the light of your community. All right, that's what Jesus is saying. That's, that's his point. And then he gives us an example. He's like, let me think about it, right? He says, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden, 
What's he saying here? What's going on? I'm sitting on a hill. No, he's saying light is just really, really, really hard to stop. Light is really, really, really hard to hide. If you got a light on a hill, like, like yeah, maybe if it's in like deep down in a cave or something, but that's not what's supposed to happen. All right, if you put a, like a city on a hill, you can't like hide it. It's there. It's seen. You can see it for miles and miles and miles. He says, think about it. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That's dumb, right? Well, I have a lamp. If you're just going to hide it. He says, but rather on a lampstand, you put it up high. That's why we have lights, you know, in the ceiling, not on the floor. And it gives light for all who are in the house. He says, in the same way, here's the deal. Let your light shine. This is what we don't do, by the way. We like to hide our light. We don't, we don't, we don't let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Right? See, what Jesus is trying to tell us is saying, hey, you have a job to do. And by the way, who's he talking to? Again, he's talking to his followers, which isn't everybody in this room, okay? Let's at least be honest with ourselves that not everybody in this room um, would, has a re- real relationship with Jesus. Maybe you think you do, and maybe you, you know, maybe you know you don't. I don't know where everybody's at. But, um, but I just want to let you know, if you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus yet at some point in your life, like if you can't think back to a moment that you made a decision to follow Jesus, I'm just saying, that's like a really big red flag saying, yeah, you probably haven't done that before, okay? Just throwing that out there. I'm not saying it's 100%. I'm saying it's up there. And so um, if you haven't done that, there's no better day to give your life over to Jesus than today because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. To realize that, hey, Jesus came down 2,000 years ago and he died for you, right? Because you are a sinner just like I am a sinner. We are all messed up, jacked up, horrible, terrible people. And, uh, and everything that we've done that's wrong needs to be paid for because God's a perfectly righteous, holy judge. And so that's exactly what he did. And he came down, was born in the dirt, left his throne, and then lived a perfect life. And then we ended up putting him to death in a horrible way on a cross... And on that cross, he poured out his wrath that we rightfully deserve on himself. And now each and every person that ever lives, you know, we, we have the opportunity to give our lives over to Jesus and start that relationship with him. And someday when we die, we get to live with him forever, which is going to be awesome, which, by the way, is what we were created for. So if you haven't done that yet, today is the day that you should do that. And I beg you and I plead with you to do it. But for the rest of us that have done that at some point in our life, here's the deal. He's saying, hey. We got a job. We have a mission, right? This is what he's talking about. This is what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago, that we are to do whatever we possibly can to reach as many people as we possibly can for Jesus. That is our job. And by the way, that becomes our job the moment that we give our lives to Jesus. And it really changes the reasoning behind everything that we do. It's like a filter that changes everything that we do, or at least the reason behind everything that we do. And so here's the deal. This is what I'm trying to get at. God doesn't light a lamp and intend for it to be hidden. That's dumb. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't put a lamp or us in this sense, is what Jesus is saying, in a random purposeless place. He doesn't do that. See, Jesus is telling us, as he was telling you know, his disciples back then, he's saying, hey, connect the dots here. See, but most of us, we don't. Um, I told you guys about how um, my oldest son, Toby, he's six years old, kindergartner, how last fall we, uh, we got him in, like, soccer. I'm not a big soccer fan. I know some of you guys are probably huge soccer fans, but I'm an American, um, A, just kidding. <laughs> um, 
But uh, Pinkerton family, we're a football family, okay? We watch football. We play football. We, I like football. Anyway, so um, uh, he wanted to do soccer, and I'm like, ah, we're not soccer people. We can't. We know anything about that, but Kate convinced me, and it's like, okay, let him go to find out that it's not fun. You know, I guess we'll do that. Just kidding. I'm really laying it on thick. For, I know some of you guys are really into that and probably play it. Oh, anyway, so sorry, but um, so we, so he goes to soccer, and again, I don't really know much about soccer, and at first, I'm, and I'm kind of competitive, um, maybe a little aggressive, maybe too aggressive. I'm like the bad parent, um, and so I'm telling him, like, hey, man, you got to get like five goals today. Like, let's go. Like, these kids are not that good, is I'm surveying the other competition. I'm like, these guys are terrible. Come on, Toby. You just get into this, like, you'll be, like, one of the best ones, except for this girl who's on his team who was awesome, all right? She'd probably beat me at soccer. Anyway, so I'm telling him that, and Toby just was not into it, all right? There's nothing I could do or try to encourage him or try to push him to, like, get him to care at all. It was really frustrating to watch. And so, like, Toby, he would go and, you know, he would run after the ball. And maybe he'd get a kick in or whatever. But then after he did that, it was, like, it was like done. Like, my first it was, hey, you need to score five goals today. And then after a few games, it was like, hey, you just need to kick the ball that way. That's all you do, okay? Nothing else. Try to keep it simple from him and realize reality, I guess. And, uh, and he, so he'd kick the ball, and then he'd just be, like, walking around. While the other kids, well, a lot of the other kids are just kind of, you know, they're, they're all running after ball. And I'm telling them, I'm like, dude, you know, stop kicking the dandelions and, like, go after the ball. It's not that hard. Like, he has a purpose out there. Like, he's on the field. He's in the game, but he's not doing anything. It's super frustrating for me to watch. Um, sometimes I wonder if that's how God views us. Think about that. Let's hit home a little bit, Right? We have a job to do as Christians, and we're in the game, whether we like it or not. We don't really get a choice. We're like in it. Once we make that decision, we're in the game. But I think a lot of us, we're out in the, you know, other side of the field just kicking the day in the lines, doing our own thing, which, by the way, is way more comfortable. Let's all agree with that, okay? It's way more comfortable. It's easy. It doesn't take any effort. Where God's saying, no, if you would just, like, understand, if you would just get it, you know, if you just understand. Sorry, Toby. Um, I'm like, you know, if you just go after the ball, if you would just try, if you put in some effort, put in some sweat, like, 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 let's go, put in the energy, all right, you would be able to do so much. You would be good. And you would actually do something with your purpose. See, sometimes I think God views us like that. He's... Like, come on, guys. Like, most of us, this is what we do. We just sit by, kind of like Toby, kind of like Esther here at this point. We miss it. Why? Because we like our comfort, right? I mean, I mean we, we like to be comfortable. Comfortable. I, um, uh, I started, I, I'm a terrible reader. I don't like reading. I'm not good at reading. I'm super slow at reading. Some of you guys have given me books to read, and two years later, I'm still, like, kind of trudging through them. So I'm working on it. In about five years, I'll give you back your book. Um, unless you want it now, and I don't have to read it all, you could take it. You know, just anyway. Anyway, so I'm, uh, I, I wanted to start reading this book. I've been wanting to read it for a long time. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, it was written in the 1600s, so hundreds of years ago. And so it's kind of hard. The English is, like, kind of difficult at some points. And, um, and it's basically just this guy who kind of accumulates all these stories about Christians, our people, Right, who died um, to spreading, telling people about Jesus, okay? 
And as I read through some of these stories, it's kind of nice because they're only like page stories or half a page or something. So right before I go to bed, I'm like, all right, let's read one of these. It's really good reading material, reading about these brutal, you know, killings of our people. But as I'm reading it, you know, I'm I'm like, what comes over me is thankfulness, right? Because of these people, because they refuse to back down, because these people wouldn't shut up. Hundreds of years ago, people that, you know, I, I obviously have no chance on meeting or anything like that. Because of them, I'm able to be here in Tiffin, right here in this, in this room. We're able to be here and have the opportunity to give our lives to Jesus so we don't have to go to hell and pay for everything that we've ever done wrong forever. It's a pretty awesome thing to think about. Because these people do it. And, and reading through some of these stories is like some of the horror and, and the terrible things that these people had to go through. And a lot of times it was they could get off scot-free if they just told, if they just said to the, to the government or whoever was, was, was had them that, you know, Jesus didn't exist or Jesus wasn't God. That's all they had to do. And they could go live their lives. But they refused to. It's because they wouldn't shut up that we're here. And they were, they were being... This, Lots of people groups were doing this to them. I mean, the government was killing these people off. Uh, you had other religions killing these people off. The Catholic Church was killing a bunch of these people off. I mean, it, our people, and it's just, it's just crazy to think about what, what our people went through, not for themselves, but for us. See, we have it so easy. So, so easy. And because of that comfort, I feel like we become blind to what actually matters in life. Mordecai sees what Esther couldn't see. And when Esther receives this message from Mordecai saying, hey, maybe, just maybe, God has you in this place, not for you, Esther, but maybe to take care of this whole situation, maybe to do something about this. This is how Esther replies in verse 15. She says, Esther said this reply to Mordecai. She says, okay. Okay, you're right. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Okay, now fast is just a, it's like intense praying. Okay, you don't eat, you don't drink, you focus on praying and that's, and that's all you do. And so she's like, go do that. Don't eat or drink for three different days. So this isn't like your five-minute prayer where you're like, hey, you get to get your prayer group together. And if you guys would just pray together, I really appreciate it. It's not what's going on. She's like, no, no, no. You and all the Jews that you can find... You guys go and you pray for three days. And by the way, don't eat or drink anything either. You're going to be miserable and you're going to pray. She says, I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law, even though what you're asking me to do is so illegal, I will do it. And if I die, I die. So Mordecai went. And he did everything that Esther had commanded him to do. He goes to all the Jews. He gets everybody to start praying um, for, for her. And, uh, and, and Esther, she's like stuck here. I mean, this is dangerous for her. Like, like, think about this. Have you ever been where Esther has been? Right here. I'm not saying life or death. Maybe, maybe you have. I don't know. But uh, have you ever been so desperate at some point in your life where it, you can't depend on anybody but God? Have you ever been there? Like, your life is so out of control that all you have left is dependence on God. Like, that's, that's, that's it. You're out of ideas. I think that is a really, really, really good place for us to be. Right? It's a great place for us to be, and we hate being there. 
right? We hate it. It's uncomfortable. It's the feeling that we lack control. It's the feeling that we can't fix it. And so we get that, you know, someday we're going to get that call from our doctor and words like cancer or accident, they're going to enter our life. And when that happens, there's nothing that we can do except to go to God. That's where Esther is at this point. She has no control over how this, you know, approaching the king, uninvited thing is going to go. All she can do is pray and go to God and ask him to somehow help her. So that's what she does. She prays. She starts praying. She gets her servants to start praying. She goes to Mordecai. She gets Mordecai praying. She gets all the Jewish people within the city. They all start praying and asking God to fix this situation. And after three days of praying, it says on the third day, Esther, she dressed in her royal clothing. So I'm just telling you, Esther, she looked good, okay? She, if she was going to die, she's going out in style. She ain't wearing the sweatpants to go see the king, okay? So she dressed in her royal clothing and she stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was also sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. So they're kind of looking at each other. And as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing there in the courtyard, like this is it, right? This is, the, this is like the pinnacle. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Queen Esther, she doesn't know how this is going to go. She knows she could get killed for this. This is kind of a big deal. It says as soon as she sees he sees her standing there. She gained favor with him. He's happy to see her. And so the king extended his golden scepter in his hand toward Esther. And she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, he's like, hey, what, what is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her, he's like, what, what's going on? What's the deal here? What, what's wrong? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So here's the king. He extends the golden scepter. He sees Esther out there. He does everything that he needs to do. He saves her life. She should be killed for doing what she's done. And instead of being dragged away and killed, he's actually happy to see her. And he's willing to give her anything. I mean, he's, he, I've, and probably, he's probably just super impressed. He's like, hey, something is bothering Esther so much. Something's bothering her so much that she's willing to risk her life to come see me. And so he's just like, hey, what's the problem? I'm going to help you out. I'll give you whatever you ask for, even if it's half the kingdom. I'll, I'll, I'll give you half the kingdom. And so he tells her that. And we, is, I mean, this is better than she had ever imagined. He's happy. She's not dead. I mean, this is really good. And we assume that this would be the perfect time to ask. Like, you know, everything seems to be perfect, so why don't you just ask the king? But that's not what she does. In the uh, verse 4, it says, if it pleases the king, Esther says, May the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for you guys. She's like, hey, um, I do have something, but uh, here's my question. Would you like to go to dinner? You know, this is it. Would you like to come to dinner with me? And hey, could you bring your friend Haman along too? I think it'd probably be good if he's there too. And uh, could we just do this? And we'll find out next week how that dinner goes. But Esther <laughs> takes action. She takes action. And by the way, with action, risk is involved. Okay, risk is a part of it. There usually is. See, Esther, she didn't have the best start, but in her defining moment, when it really mattered, she said yes. Yes, her past was not perfect. She didn't do everything perfect, but the past doesn't matter. See, what drives me crazy sometimes is that people, some people, it's like they get so caught up with their past. It's like, you know, I talk to people, it's like, you know, I struggle with, Fill in the blank. So I'm disqualified. 
You know, God doesn't want me doing that. You know, because what are those people going to do? I'm a hypocrite. You know, whatever it might be. It's like we think somehow that, that God won't use us because of something that we did in the past. Here's what we all got to understand. We are all messed up. You are messed up. Some of you, you know that more than others. Okay. I'm messed up. Okay, we are all sinful people. And if you're waiting for you to be perfect, to do what God wants you to do, it's never going to happen. See, it doesn't matter what your past is or your history is or your ability is. Esther, she was an orphan Jewish girl in a foreign land. She had nothing. And she begins by being more concerned with herself than the lives of her entire people. I mean, talk about messed up. That's messed up. Likewise, God has placed you with a checkered past and limited abilities in a special place with a chance to be a light to somebody. Uh, but what about my past? What about your past? The point is you're here now. You got to stop looking backwards and start looking forwards. See, God has given you certain opportunities and talents and abilities and resources and, and time. And what you do with them matters. See, some of you guys, some people, it's just the, the way you live your life, it all revolves around goals. And I'm not saying goals are bad or you shouldn't have goals in your life. But, you know, it's all about the, why you do life is your financial goals or retirement goals or professional goals. Or you want that car, you want that house, or you want this family this way, and, or you want to live this lifestyle. And I'm just, like, just to be honest, completely, brutally honest with you, you are giving your life to a goal that's far too small and far too dumb. You're wasting those things. You're wasting your life. You're disconnected from what actually matters. And someday you're going to die. <laughs> and you can't take any of that stuff with you. See, some people, you're kind of more, maybe more like Esther, um, where, or at least Esther at first, we're all about safety and you're all about minimizing risk and, and you don't want to rock the boat. Right? You don't want to, I don't want to rock the boat in this relationship. I don't want to rock the boat at work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. It's all about safety and it's all about minimizing risk for you. Here's the deal. You can't hold on to life. It will escape you at some point. You don't know when. You have no control when. And so you might as well risk your life for the kingdom. Right? You might as well risk your life by being the light. Your safety, some of you guys really need to hear this. All right? Your safety is a myth. It's an illusion. It doesn't actually really exist. Unless you die in a tragic accident, which happens, someday you will get a call from your doctor that will change your life forever, and you can't control it. You could walk into work tomorrow and be told that you don't have a job anymore. You can't control it. See, safety is an illusion, and it's so foolish to bank on it. It's so foolish to build your life in pursuit of it. And instead, you could build your life on doing what is going to last. And so the question for today is not, am I going to lose my life? Yeah, you will, all right? Somehow, some way, it's going to happen. Hopefully, it's not super painful. You know, I'm just saying, it's going to happen. The question is, am I going to have a stake into what lasts forever? Are you going to use God's positioning in your life for what lasts? Which, by the way, according to Jesus, is helping others find Jesus so that they don't have to spend eternity in a place called hell. It's a big deal. Or are you going to use God's positioning in your life for yourself and completely miss your purpose? 
and completely waste your life. And yeah, your life will be comfortable, at least for a while. Like, think about it. How dare we just sit by? How dare we don't work, we stay out of the game and we're kicking the dandelions in the, in the backfield? How dare we just do nothing? How dare we waste all this, you know, our talents, our opportunities, our time that God has given us? And really, that's my biggest fear in my life. And I've told this to you guys before. My biggest fear is at the end of my life, uh, maybe I'll get the privilege of laying on my deathbed and I'll be able to think back through my life. And my biggest fear is realizing that I've wasted it by running after the wrong things that have just sat by and allowed people around me that I care about and that I love, let's be honest, to die and go to hell. See, God, Jesus says you are the light. You're his solution to the problem. I don't know why he chose this, but that's, that's what he chose. And God has purposely placed you for a reason. And if you just connect the dots, if you just look around in your life and see, you can help save people around you, and your life can mean something. So that's my question for this morning. Are you living out your purpose? Or are you wasting it? Let's pray. God, we... Thank you for these words. And this story and this reminds us that you're always working behind the scenes and that you don't do stuff by accident. Yeah, we might not take the, the most straight route to get to where we're at and we might make mistakes along the way, but you work it out. You're God. And God, we thank you for that. Lord, help us to see that this week. Help us to see that you do not put us in purposeless places. That we're to be a light and we're supposed to shine. That's what you told us to do. And make a difference in this world. And the biggest difference that we can make is by helping people find you. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to do that this week. And in all the different areas that you have us. That you have our church family here in Tiffin. And we go out in this world and do that as a team, as a family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.